let's just do the show. Okay. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, the podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads in their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat. I'm Mike. And welcome to another week. We've got a great show for you. We've got an interview. Yes. Um, don't forget to visit us on Facebook, our website, middleagesrecovery.com, uh, and uh, tell us your story, and we will read it on the air. So uh, what else is going on? Well, uh, Yep. I can tell you what else is going on. Yes, sir. Um, what else is going on is that we have a new Facebook group. Yes, this is very cool. Yeah. Um, what but, it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is interesting. Okay, so if you go to the page, I assume most of you have gone to the Facebook page and uh, liked the page. You can go there and you can request an invitation or uh, to join our new Facebook group, which is a more private um, area on the internet where we can speak more freely than we can in the yeah. other places on the internet. I guess. And you have to be approved as members only, answer right. a couple of questions, and it's going to be very tightly controlled as far as, you know, it's it's very private. So we can really like, you know, it's fun to discuss certain things online and, you know, you don't want to, uh, other people being able to search it. Uh, and so this is a great way to do that. And and one interesting thing, you said that when you were approving some member requests, uh, you asked the people who you were approving whether or what they thought of the podcast and whether, in fact, they had listened to the podcast, and many of them had not. Yeah, it's this interesting phenomenon. Non-listeners are joining our private discussion group, which is great, you know, and hopefully they'll get a chance to listen at some point. I I encourage them gently and sometimes not so gently to (laughs) to listen to the podcast because... uh, that forms the basis for yes. everything we're doing this is on not Facebook. A, so, <laughs> this is not a treatment center. No. We are, <laughs> although that's how we're uh, indexed. I noticed. Is it? It says treatment tr- center, treatment center, or something. So we're not a treatment center. So this is a clearly very <laughs> the inmates are running the asylum here. In, indeed, they are. Um, wanted to extend a warm welcome to any dopey podcast listeners that we might be getting over. I've uh, been running an ad with them. Um, we're big, big fans of that show. We've got a, a nice little ad spot at the beginning. Thanks to Dave for that, and um, welcome new listeners. It's uh, it's it's proven to me, at any rate, that advertising actually works. Since, yeah, when, since people are actually coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is a miracle. We're we're growing by leaps and bounds, and thank you to everybody who is subscribing. And um, it's just really, really amazing to me that uh, any more than anybody <laughs> wants to listen to my banter, but uh, we appreciate it. Um, so besides that, um, what did your wife had something I'd not complimentary to say oh, yeah. about our last show or two? So every Friday, when if we post on Friday, I send her you know the link to the show. I text it to her and I say, oh, something for your commute home. Right. You know? And... Uh, she gets home and never, you know, and, you know, stuff happens with the family and we never really end up getting to talk so much about it. Except last week she came in and I said, so what did you think of that story of me getting accidentally high? And and she's like, I didn't uh, make it that far. I didn't make and it I that said, far. I said, why not? She said, well, I couldn't get past the inane chatter at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> oh. And I'm like, what are you talking about? The whole the whole show is inane yeah, chatter. That's, the, <laughs> that's our That's our actual, ca- that's the subcategory. Right. Um, so, but, it, but of course, like any good, uh, insecure human being, I started, I started ruminating on that and thinking like, Jesus Christ, did we talk too much in the beginning? And maybe that maybe there's too much like, uh, hummada, hummada, hummada at the beginning. Like, I, I don't know. Um, I thought maybe we could, uh, you know, like organize it better. So more bullet points, um, just more, more outline that that's what I'm hearing here. But do we, 
Where do you draw the line between the inane chatter and the rest of the show? That's what I'm trying to put my finger on. It is the duplicitous edge upon which we all walk upon. Okay, maybe. <laughs> maybe it is. <laughs> too much, too I mean, little. It's, it's just right. It's the just right. I don't know if we're being duplicitous. It's not like we're luring someone in with the promise of great treasures and then... It's you being know. The, the, the two sides. Either you're inane chatter or you're oh, reading okay. a script. I, see what you mean. I, I thought duplicity implied some sort of dishonesty. It could. It could connote that. I don't know. I, I don't feel dishonest. I feel we're like, not you being know... Distant. We are not frauds. What you see is what you get, folks. <laughs> yes. There's nothing is, more. This is a WYSIWYG podcast. So, uh, Aaron, to you, I w- we will try to uh, be less inane at the beginning yes. of the show. Let's get straight to the point. Like, um, as many of you know, I've been uh, vaping now for a couple of years after I quit smoking, and it has become a point of contention with my children, mm. uh, m- amazingly. Finally, I was uh, I had a nice little addiction to, uh, you know, that my wife approved of, basically, and um, and now my kids are calling me out on it, and, uh, and so typically, like, they would find it and then wing it outside without me knowing I'd lose it. Anyway, so finally last night, um, they did it again. And then this morning on my way to work, I was like, am I going to stop and pick up another one? And I'm like, you know what? Forget it. Um, I'm just going to try and not, you know, vape since I've been getting so much hell from my kids. Why do you think the kids have all of a sudden locked into this as a thing? Are they getting that education in school now because they're hitting that age? Yes. Vaping became like a huge issue a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, Your kids are the right age for that. Your oldest. Yes. My oldest has, I believe, participated in some of that. Uh, But like when it first burst onto the scene and like every kid had a jewel, you know, it was in the news and I'm sure they did like a D.A.R.E. program style uh, for jewel or they came in not just jewels but, but i mean that was the number one thing they cut out the flavors and anyway, well so it's one been of, demonized one of the kids that my older son went to school with uh actually collapsed because he was vaping like so many carts a day or oh. something like because i guess one of those carts is like a certain number of cartons of cigarettes or something, and the kid was just sucking them down like they were yeah. nothing, you know, and eventually he collapsed at football practice. So. Um, yeah, I mean, that do do anything that much and you'll collapse at football yeah. practice. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting palpitations <laughs> yes. just thinking about putting that much nicotine in my nicotine, body. Nicotine, you know, when, when they... Um uh, I think when they raided, uh, I think it was Qaddafi's, uh, when he was done and we came in there to, to look around, they had the biological, one of the biological weapons, I saw this in a documentary on HBO about, uh, it was definitely uh, Qaddafi. He had stockpiled nicotine, mm. but the reason was it was for biological warfare wow. as a poison, as an assassination. So hmm. it was amongst their... Um, That's interesting. Uh, your bioweapon cache, you know, their chemical weapons. So... So there's that. That's okay. So, Good <laughs> so stuff. Momar Gaddafi, shout out. Um, John the Can Man, a little bit of an update. Um, I don't know if you remember, he's a local guy that, you know, uh, he was recently um, homeless. Uh, he comes into my shop um, every so often to update me. I was in uh, treatment with him for a while locally. So it's kind of a fun. <laughs> Uh, guys are buddies. <laughs> pretty buddy, buddy. Yeah. But um, so he's doing better. He, he says he's found a place to stay that he was, you know, reluctant to tell me about. Apparently, mm. it may not be on the up and up okay. uh, legal wise. 
Okay. So, uh, but there's uh, only it, so many places you can hide in the burbs, though. Right? Uh, yeah, and I, I didn't. He didn't want to tell me. I don't know. Like he's got something figured out that he wasn't sharing with me, hmm. uh, which I, which is interesting because uh, I know just about every other stupid thing. And, uh, but at least, you know, he's, he's under a roof, you know, I'm trying to push him to really like, you know, save some money and get an apartment, rent a room somewhere, you know, yeah. join the living. It's so hard to do around yeah. here. It's impossible. So You'd expensive. have to move to another town. Yeah. You know, and really. he's not going to leave Oyster Bay. He's like a very dif- definition no. of a townie. I mean, hundred percent. Anytime I, I mention it or suggest like, Oh, what about, you know, mess, you know, another town, um, that's. No, no interest. Not right. like, no. That's in that town. I'm not doing that. I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> yeah, things like, are going so well for you here. What's going on here? Yeah. That it's so like, <laughs> I gotta stay here. This is it, man. Yeah. Um, so that's my update on him. So he doesn't. He has not re- relapsed. Uh, he's miraculously, even though his treatment center is only seeing talking to him on the phone because he can't figure out how to do the internet. I think um, we skip by though the fact. Uh, Leaving John, the can man, to his to his cans for a moment. Yes, that you are actually not vaping today. Right. Okay. Did we? Did you? Did we make a, a point of that? So oh, that's a big deal. I the, think the big deal is that I I did not pick up another vape thing. You know, this morning after being sabotaged, and sometimes I would even go out that night after they just you know destroy it. I'd be like, F- forget it. I'm just going to drive to the guest. I didn't do that. All right, good for you. So I haven't vaped this morning or today and currently no plans to. Good. Um, Excellent, man. We shall see. Right. Um, the last One day at a time. <laughs> One day at a time. All right. The last bit of inane chatter. <laughs> the last bit. Um, because we got to get to our, uh, when, when is the interview supposed to happen? Is she just Sometime like kind between of, now and 1030. All right. So we're, we're good. There's no Russian. We've closed up no. here. Um, me and Mike were talking about, uh, when even to this day, when I see a police officer or a, a cop car behind me anywhere, I immediately feel like I'm either doing something wrong um, or uh, like I forgot I there was something I did that was wrong. They're going to pull me over and I get extreme, extreme anxiety. Um, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, and I haven't done anything illegal per se uh, in a while. In a long time, I don't have a record anymore. It's I just think. you feel illegal driving around. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I I'm not too. supposed to be driving, like, period. Um, you know, my, my interactions with the police have been infrequent of late but uh last summer i did get pulled over um that was two summers ago i was driving home from the beach on on a road near our town and i was apparently going 75 miles an hour which uh the road i was on that would not be really an unusual speed um Mm. by the cider mill yes okay of course uh and as luck would have it i had um one of my son's friends in the car you know (laughs) so he I'm sure he went home and told his parents. Of course. Pulled over. But, <laughs> of uh, course. Can you imagine? But, you know, in my head, I'm playing out this scenario where the cop's going to just be like, all right, get out of the car. I'm going to search your car. And like, you know, this is like, this is the suburbs. And, you know, I'm, uh, you know, oh. I don't look like I'm on anything. <laughs> so he, you know, he just gave me a warning and let me go. But uh, yeah, you're yeah. the mo- one of the most non-threatening looking people I think I've ever met. Gee, um, thanks. I n- guess. But that's a good thing. Like, uh, I'm not threatening. I'm that's not. Why I used to get ripped off all the time in the Bronx. <laughs> but like, I'm the same way. You know, yeah. I think we're both pretty non-threatening. I mean, you're yeah. a lot taller than me. Um, yeah. You know, Mike is, you're like six foot seven, right? 
seven or eight, something like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe not quite uh, that big. Gigantic, yeah. actually. You should see him. His knees are up around his shoulders. He's sitting in this tiny little chair, and it's actually it's a sight to behold. It uh, is funny though, because <laughs> a couple, also a couple summers ago, when I w- was going up to Massachusetts for uh, a conference, I and I went to the dispensary and I bought some weed and I, I took it back on the ferry. Um, you know, I was on the ferry and it occurred to me in this age of terrorism and whatnot that there are probably dogs that sniff things. And mm-hmm. I'm like, how great would that be to have to explain to my wife <laughs> that I'm in a federal jail because uh, I was smuggling uh, weed from Massachusetts back to New York. So. <laughs> you know. That ended up fine also. So Yeah, well, thank God for that. And, you know, like I've had so many interactions with cops over the years, um, all the way down to one time uh, when I was a little kid at Sunday school, I must have been 10 or 12 years old. Um, Me and the other kids were in a little skit in church that morning. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we all, you know, when we exited stage left and the congregation was still watching the other kids, we walked into town, walked all the way to where you get ices, and um, and as soon as we saw a car, we decided it'd be funny, a cop car, to just all of a sudden pretend to get spooked and run away from it. <laughs> okay, and we ran behind the ice place. We ran uh-huh. around, and the, the car, the cop car put its lights on. <laughs> there is like eight kids from Sunday school dressed up in our like church clothes, and they're, the guy's like, what's going on? <laughs> and then that story is just legend. So that was probably my first, uh, you know, see, meeting with the, uh, the local police here in my life. And uh, it didn't end there. That was not the last time. That's a funny one. I have to say, as um, you know, challenging as it can be to encounter the police, my my experiences with them, you know, back in the in the, the Bronx drug days were uh, almost uniformly positive. They they yeah. let me go every single time. <laughs> they or occasionally arrested the people I was with. Right, but uh, you know. They were good to me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. NYPD. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, I was always, I still am overly polite. Uh, I don't know how that far that got me. Probably p- pretty far. Well, a lot further than if you tell them to go fuck themselves, right? Yeah. You know, the predictable reaction. And, and yeah. by the way, that's exactly what I was saying. The night I was arrested for DWI, um, I remember having a vague memory of uh, screaming, yelling, and being sarcastically like um, aggressive with whoever, the, like the sheriff or like the guy who was running <laughs> that. I forget what he was. Uh-huh. And I was like, this is just like the Nazis. And the, <laughs> like, you guys are fascists. And I have very like vague in and out like memory of that. And then one day after my case was being like put, we were settling, you, you know, everything was, I was convicted, all of that. I was going through the folders and you get the report that they made that night uh-huh. of the things I was saying. <laughs> Great. Like all of this stuff, man, it was so funny. And I was reading it and I couldn't read all of it. I'm like, I can't read this. <laughs> like it was just, there was no doubt I was wasted, you know, yeah. but they were very, you know, uh, professional. They were yeah. professional, <laughs> even in the face of me. Yeah. And, and those, the, t- the two guys that picked me up, I, you know, I almost felt bad for them. They were super nice guys. And I, it took, it took like six hours from getting arrested to finally going in front of a judge and finally, like, it was a pain in the ass. Like, they were just like, yeah. oh, it was late. I'm like, this right. sucks for everybody. You you were getting arrested. <laughs> they were getting overtime. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. So, They're just counting their money, yeah. man. Um, but, yes, overall, but I still, to this day, even when I'm not doing anything wrong, 
feel like I am. Yeah. That's the imposter syndrome coming right. back, right? Maybe someday that'll go away. And ever since we discussed imposter syndrome, I'm seeing See it, it everywhere, right? Everywhere. I hear yeah. it everywhere because I'm constantly I'm constantly listening to different addiction podcasts, memoirs and stuff. And even when they're not talking about imposter syndrome, they're just saying the way they feel and mm-hmm. these things. I'm like, imposter syndrome. That's 100% <laughs> imposter syndrome. It's true. Um, so it's interesting, you know, especially since I, I never had it addressed in my many therapies and sessions and that's interesting uh, i never heard about it up until you know maybe we started talking about Mm -hmm. it and maybe i heard it uh, on another show but you know i've never identified with uh, something so closely like that's me you know we should bring that up with kathy I'm the imposter. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's going to be a great interview. Um, tell oh, yeah. Me, tell have, me about right. uh, So we have an interview. So Kathy a little bit. Um, Kathy uh, Wilder is our guest today. Kathy is a, um, she has an MSW, but she's also a LCSW, mm-hmm. licensed, certified, certified social worker. worker. Right. Yeah. And um, she has been in the... Um, I don't know what you'd call it. The addiction business. The addiction business. <laughs> Maybe not. She's For uh, 25, 30 years, I guess. Wow. Yeah. She retired a couple of years ago, but I. Um, she's also my mother-in-law, which dun, 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 dun. full disclosure. Uh, no, all I have is, uh, you know, I got... <laughs> Do you torture small uh, animals? I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's anyway. all I got. Uh, I took, took away all my sound effects. Right, anyway. have to revamp that. Yeah, we will. Um, some vamping going on. So it's interesting that I have um, so much addiction in my, <laughs> my family. It my mother-in-law has worked in addiction lot, yeah. for 30 years. My father-in-law is an alcoholic in AA, a recovering, recovered alcoholic in mm-hmm. AA for 30 years. Uh, it's just kind of all over the place, which, yeah. which is interesting because that makes me think that, you know, if... It's probably typical that every family has some sort of connections like yeah. this. Maybe not as many, but so let's get her on the phone, um, and we can go further into her career and all that kind of stuff. Yes. All right. Looking forward to this. Here we go, Kathy. Does she know to call you. Um, <laughs> gonna call. She knows you're calling. Yeah. I'm gonna call her, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, Kathy. How are you? Hi. Hi. Uh, you are welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, a podcast uh, about uh, recovery. Um, and middle-aged dads. And middle-aged dads in uh, on Long Island. So, dads. I don't even know what that means anymore, middle-aged. Yeah, it, it's a... me, I'm still... Yeah, I mean, it's I anywhere... I refuse to take on the old lady role. But. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I mean, what, you know... Every year it's something different, like 50s, the new 30s, 60s, the new 40. I don't know. I can't keep track right. anymore. I think 40s, the new So basically, 15. so so Mark, you're the, uh, you're the new, what, 15? Works for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, a shame that, like, the body doesn't feel that way. That That's the only problem, you know? Right. Well, that's true. <laughs> so I'm here with uh, my co-host, Nat, uh, who is Hi, the Nat. other Hello. And, um... So I, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, sure, thanks for having me. Our audience... It's definitely a first. Well, yeah, for us too. I mean, we, we've interviewed a couple of people, but one of them was my friend and the other one was somebody else we knew from a group on the internet, so... Yeah, we haven't um, had an actual professional clinician, uh, somebody, you know, in the field and... Um, when I learned that you have experience in, especially MAT, medication-assisted treatment, is such a hot topic mm-hmm. in recovery. People are, Definitely. they're so scared. I think there's a lot of fear going on. People are very afraid. I think there's also a lot of judgment going on. Yes. Too. 
you know, that that's not really sobriety if you're, you know, either on methadone, suboxone, you know, whatever it is that helps to, oh, those are the two big ones. Um, there's a lot of judgment that that's not really being clean and sober. So it's unfortunate because, uh, right. like you said, you know, it's a very hot topic, so... So we're going to let's let's hold off on getting into that for a minute. I just wanted to sort of go over a little bit about your professional uh, background so we we know, you know, what areas you're you're an expert in. Um we were talking yesterday mm-hmm. doing a little bit of uh pre-interview if you will and you mentioned that mm-hmm. um uh you had 15 years working in the methadone um methadone program for yes. Suffolk County Department of Health. Department of Health. And you you have uh, LCSW certification, and yes. and then for the last ten years before you retired, you w- were working um, in the dual dual diagnosis. Uh, right. What's how, what, what's dual recovery the, program? The dual yes, recovery that's also program. with the Department of Health. Oh wow! So, and uh, it's one of the first programs um, in New York. But um, particularly Long Island, that took the approach for the the um, treatment, the dual diagnosis, as well as um, um, the legal aspect that also comes in. The, every client that was referred is referred through probation, so it's so, sort of like an alternative to incarceration program. If you complete the program then uh, most likely, you know, the charges are dropped and you can get a, another shot at, you know, taking care of business. So, so that's like drug court. Do they do they go through drug yes. court? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, and they also have family court. They have, but this dual recovery program was out of a clinic and um, I would provide individual group therapy uh, work probation was on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, probation was also involved in some of the groups, so clients actually got a better feel that you know they're really there trying to help. They were very special probation officers. I know some people have very bad experiences, um, and uh, some people don't. But um, we were, worked very nicely as far as uh, they were treatment oriented. That it was not punishment oriented mm-hmm. so if there was some kind of a problem and there was you know use of some kind then you know probation as well as the uh, social workers tried to assist them to try to reach a better place so um yeah so i did that the last 10 years of my uh, employment and it was very rewarding you know it was um it was a very good program so, so, that's, um, so you touched on the fact that in drug court, you know, it's specific judges who are assigned to the drug court, right? Um, so they get to see the well, same. This was back when I was in when I was in methadone. I would hear of these judges. At, so, well, also this uh, dual recovery. The judges started to know who the clients were, right? Because certain judges were assigned to the court, and it wasn't just any. You know, you just happen chance get a certain judge. There were certain judges that worked in those courts. And um, 
and I was speaking when I was speaking to you about that funny story that happened, you know, many years ago. Where, um, the judge started to get to know one of the clients because she was frequently, you know, relapsing and not following the treatment recommendations. Right. And one day he said to her, you know, Patty, uh, you were very cute when you first came here. You're not looking so cute anymore. You know, and she was <laughs> devastated. <laughs> devastated. Yeah, well, it must and be I hard said, to well, hear that from the bench, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, her face dropped because, you know, you don't usually hear that from a judge. But the judge ca- truly cared for her. He was rooting for her. And, uh, you know, there was, it was sort of a funny you know, a lot of funny situations went on there. How but many, it's getting real, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many chances do people typically get? Because, um, you know, you do see the folks that show up, you know, every X number of months. And, you know, you, you talked a little, you and I were talking a little bit yesterday about how six months seems to be the magic, magic relapse number for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But I assume a lot yeah. of these, um, you know, stints in drug court are, you know, if you're deferring like a relatively long sentence, then you're going to be in this program with the drug court for longer than six months, right? A lot of times, yes. Um, I think, it could, I'm not sure what it is now, but I think it's not, um, well, it's usually a year, actually. Okay. And then it can be up to 18 months, from what I understand. And again, they go by what your progress is. If you happen to, you know, go over by a bit, um, as long as you're obviously making progress. I mean, there's lots of ways to make progress or not make progress, whether you're attending, whether your attitudes are off, you know, the relapsing. Um, urine tests, right? I mean, there's a lot of checking. Urine tests, right. yes. Relapsing with, you know, even attitudes. Attitudes are huge. But um, overall, they commit to a year, but that doesn't mean that you're getting out necessarily in a year. It has to do with your progress. So uh, they just try to work with you. It's not like a concrete, um, okay, I went in on March 15, and that means it's going to be, you know, a year from that March next next March fifteenth. So it could be it fairly open ended. It's open ended, but there's definitely a maximum. But it's never just an exact number. It has to do with how well you're doing, mm. and the person knows. And then sometimes you get, uh, you know, we've had clients where their uh, sentence might be three months in jail, and. Um, they would have to attend, uh, or six months, uh, even, and uh, their program is twelve months, and they opt to take the jail time. Well, yeah, but we see. Yes, go ahead. I was about to say, yeah, I've I've heard. Uh, I I was in reco- I am in recovery, and I've been through the system in in Nassau County, and I I just remember I used to meet guys like that who they would do a couple of weeks at one of these places, you know, um, Seafield or LICR places like that at South Oaks, and then they would, you know, pretty much like you said, they would say, you know what, send me to jail. I can't do this. 
Right. But we would sometimes see them again anyway. So <laughs> they weren't escaping from anywhere, really. No. <laughs> we would see them. And they decided this time, maybe they'll try this way. <laughs> you know, it's, um, but it's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to really make the decision. I can understand that feeling. It sounds when you, when you don't realize that you need treatment and uh, your addiction is running your life, it's really hard to hear that you're going to be monitored for a year as yeah. opposed to yeah. three months. Yeah, that's a long time. And I remember for me being in that scenario, I had a DWI yeah. in Nassau County um, in 2000 and I think it was 15 or 14. Um, uh-huh. And um, so I definitely, it was interesting because I, I didn't have a drug arrest per se, but I was, mm-hmm. I had the DWI, so I, I didn't have an option for drug court, but my terms of probation were impossible for me as an addict to adhere to. Um, and mm-hmm. so I would continually, and luckily I had an angel as a um, probation officer. He was wonderful. Uh, I got very, lo- I got very lucky with him, and eventually he had to um, violate me because uh, it was too many times, and I understood, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, I had that that same, you know, experience where it's just you not knowing, you know, how long you're going to be in a place is is very hard. Right, and it, you know, it's scary because that's how you have been possibly living your life depending on how long it's been going on you know how do you do it differently you don't have the tools yet but on the other side having the faith that you can have the tools but it's really hard to believe that you can have something that you never experienced so you don't know how to visualize that that you can actually have something different and get through it in a different way so the you know it it gets um it's a I, you know, it's a scary process. And, uh, it really is. And, uh, it, that makes me think of a moment. I was, um, I was with a a counselor, um, at another local, at another local outpatient at KPC. And, Uh um, I remember I was in the final stages of, I had gone through, I, um, intensive outpatient. I did the whole, the whole schmear. And, um, and finally, I remember my first day though, with my one-on-one, when I had moved down, stepped down to only the the weekly meetings, he said, I want to try and get you to love Nat. I remember him saying that to me and just the note, I remember the very notion of the, I like that idea that I could love myself. It, it brought right. me to tears because it seemed completely ludicrous and absurd and then at the same time, devastating that I knew I could never do that, you know, and it was a little bit of a breakthrough. Did you learn to do that? I did. I, I actually, yes, th- thankfully. But, you know, th- from that moment to here, it was like explaining, you know, algebra to an ant. I had, you know, it, did seem, it seemed so And you know what? Ludicrous. She had, if she or he had said that earlier, you probably would not have even understood what that meant. But you were ready to hear that. To yeah. say that it had that kind of an emotional impact on you, mm-hmm. that yeah. lets you know. That's why things have to be done gradually. You can't introduce those concepts. That's why programs take as long as they take because you need to reach that place before you can hear certain things that's going to help move your life forward into a place that you know that you want to be. 
Yeah, and, and you don't even know you want to be there yet. So how yeah. do you even introduce those things? That's right. And and MAT, coming back to that, was... Uh, and so I experienced a lot of the hardcore 12-step stuff, um, uh, attending meetings and going to these uh, rehabs and outpatients that push it. And then, but mm-hmm. also I would get, because I was in like a clinical setting, I had access to MAT. And so I kind of saw both ends. I would meet with the psychiatrist at one place, um, you know, and he would say, you know, you're bipolar, Um and I was diagnosed like it's the dual diagnosis thing came a huge part of my story because finally when mm-hmm. I started to be treated for the for the bipolar disorder and depression, it seemed like I was mm-hmm. able to better, you know, take care of the addiction uh, recovery part. Um, yes. Well, for so many years, it wasn't acknowledged. The mental health piece was not acknowledged and they they have schools of thought where you treat mental health at mental health facilities, you treat addiction at substance abuse facilities, but it wasn't working. You know, you have to combine the two and really address both at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think you might agree with me. You know, I've meeting so many people over the past 10 years in recovery and in the rooms and also in your career. I mean, I don't know many, if any people I've met in recovery that didn't have some kind of mental health piece. Maybe the severity was different. I agree. But I mm-hmm. mean, and you could even, some some people argue that everybody in the world, you know, to a person all has something in the DSM. Um, but I, I really think, yeah, I didn't see many well-adjusted, no mental health problems, people that were just abusing drugs and that was it. No, there's, there's always an underlying reason for that. It's become... You know, a coping mechanism for something, and um, uh, and it's really important that both be addressed. But years ago, they didn't recognize it as having as, as being able to do that at the same time. So I think uh, they came a long way in a positive way in uh, the treatment uh, arena for, that for they long- now look at it that you treat both at the same time. For, dual disorders. For a long time, addiction was looked at as a some kind of a moral failing, rather yes. rather than as a, a medical condition. It's that, still out there. I, I, there's many judgmental people out there. Yeah. You know, I, I hear you speak of the rooms, Nat, mm-hmm. and um, I know that in the rooms, I had many clients who would want to go to the AA rooms as opposed to the NA because they felt there was um, a bit of a more, you know, sobriety focus in the AA rooms and more stability. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of people that spoke of being rejected from the AA rooms that they weren't allowed to speak of their uh, um, addiction specifically in those rooms. So, um, yes, yeah, some abuse uh, goes on for sure. And there's a lot in the NA rooms that don't approve of being on methadone or suboxone. Right. That is a big Uh, issue. A a lot of judgment. And um, I always encourage people to just, I'll take my own inventory. Why don't you take, you know, you keep, you take your inventory. I'll take my inventory. We're all here for recovery. Um, Absolutely. There's ways to manage, you know, medically manage. And if that's beneficial then uh, certainly that's an avenue to try. Um, 
I have found with Suboxone that a lot of times it's not a good first treatment attempt mm-hmm. um, because, as you know, you I mean, you go to the doctor, he gives you your prescription of Suboxone, correct? Mm-hmm. And then um, you have a choice now. And if you're not in a good space, you can choose to use the Suboxone that day or not use the Suboxone that day. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and there's also street value for that suboxone. Right. So it's very, um, it's a very tricky, you know, treatment modality. But I think it's important that people are in um, a pretty decent state of their recovery and shape in recovery, uh, and have the support that's needed so that they can uh, be successful with the suboxone because it has a lot of great potential. Yeah, they have to work, and I, and I was on Suboxone for a long time and, and came off of it, and, and I went through the fits and starts of, you know, when I was addicted to heroin, uh, Suboxone at first was something I could get uh, from a friend in order to yeah. uh, to plug the, the holes of when I couldn't uh, get heroin, um, but right. later on, when I got, because my recovery story, it evolved like many, you know, I went through different phases. So when, once I got to a phase where I was more serious and willing, and then I was prescribed Suboxone, uh, and then it, it really worked because I wasn't using it uh, for nefarious reasons. I was following my doctor. I was trying to work my program. And then mm-hmm. a- after about a year and a half, I came off of it, and I didn't have a heroin problem pretty much ever again. Uh, later on, then I picked up alcohol, but it worked for that at that time. So how, how, who mm-hmm. decides Who decides on the timing of that? Because if, you, if it's not considered like a first line of, of uh, treatment, what do you do first? Well, um, I'm not saying that it's not considered a first line because there's a lot of places that do give it as a first line. It's just not as successful. Um, it's all my personal experience right. has been that um, it's not the first thing that I would talk about as I'm speaking to somebody in recovery. Um, I actually am not against um, methadone, which I know methadone is like, oh, my God, methadone, you know, liquid handcuffs. Right. Um, it teaches you the structure of coming in, being medicated, being tested. Um, they used to just have it as a like a methadone pickup joint where you didn't have treatment back years and years ago. Um, but by now the they time make I you go, then, yeah. Excuse me? I'm so, now, don't they, isn't it a place, at least where we live, where uh, they have to go to counseling and yes. uh, groups and things like that? Well, when I came in started working in the system, that was new. You know, that was a whole new concept. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think that it allows a person to get into a routine of stability if they're on the program for the correct reason. You know, everything is about being honest with yourself. And for some people, that concept is really hard to grasp, you know. But... Um, uh, I worked with many clients and having them transfer from the methadone over to the suboxone. Not an easy feat, I have to say, because they had to detox all the methadone and uh, to get onto the suboxone, so it wasn't a very easy thing. But um, it was done, 
and it does allow you know more freedom as long as your focus is still on all of the recovery tools that you have gathered together that help to bring you to a you know more functioning lifestyle or the lifestyle of which you wanted to be in so i um, you know i think suboxone is has a very powerful place, but I also think methadone has a very powerful place. And again, there's a lot of judgment against methadone in the rooms and suboxone. So I just feel that it's um, unfortunate that um, people are in there, you know, judging and, like I said, you know, taking other people's inventory instead of looking at themselves because... uh, Everyone's recovery process is unique on some level, but very common on another level. Yeah, if you if you don't die, you can recover. I mean, and I think that's the bottom line with harm reduction and yeah. MAT. Yeah. Um, it's you know, instead of being so hard lined and like, if, unless you're this, then you're not successful. So many people have mm-hmm. not gone back to the rooms uh, because of the the, sh- the shame level that just is innate, I think, in the program and people, you know, I call the 24-hour chip the uh, the shame chip because you, you, know, you have to do the walk of shame and you grab your shame chip and everybody kind of starts calculating. Aww, it's really unfortunate, yeah. too, because if you really read the steps privately, there's nothing bad about them, right? you know, and I know that some people have trouble with the term, you know, God, they're not, they're not connected in that way. But it doesn't have to only be God. It could be any higher power or, you know, your children or, um, you know, the invite nature. You know, it doesn't have to be a God. It can be something that you can, you know, at least grasp that makes your, makes you feel good inside, you know. And uh, it's unfortunate that these experiences happen to people mm. and it and also meetings a lot of times they'll have all different personalities these meetings i remember clients speaking about the one in um in jones beach at sunrise mm. uh you know they all have different personalities so when someone is going to a meeting you know at one place and it's really a bad you know just not getting good vibes from it um you know you try different ones because they had different names for the meetings and they had different personalities for the meetings. Yeah. Some are more so. open to drug stories. I, I, I don't know. Um, I I had I had various experiences with twelve steps. Some of it was great. A lot of it was great, and I see a lot of the great in it. Um, it's just not mm-hmm. the way I ultimately uh, got recovered. Um, but I think I think like you said, every group is very different. It's sort of like churches um, in that mm-hmm. you know the people really make it. And some people, yeah. if you had a bad experience, they say go to at least five different meetings to find it. And now with COVID. Uh, so many people are so lost um, right now, and and how yeah. how are you seeing, or do you, do you know how are these facilities operating? That if people have to get their methadone every day, or if they need their mental health services, um, like I know a few people who have been completely cut off from their AA groups because they're not meeting, and they don't have a computer, they don't know how to do online. What are they? What's yeah, going on that's, now? 
Well, uh, like I said, I'm retired for the past five years. Right, thank so, God but for I that. have. <laughs> yes, I'm really thankful for that. I have to say, um, but um, I know that some of the facilities are doing partly. They'll go in sometimes, but a lot is being done online. And um, as far as methadone, that's a medical dosing. So I'm sure I didn't speak to anybody working over there, mm-hmm. but I'm sure they're being dosed. I mean, you can't not dose people. Right. So um, it must be, um, um, you know, that they, they wear masks and they probably, I mean, I'm assuming allow only a certain number of people at a time. Mm-hmm. And, uh but that's uh, that's for sure. I don't know how they're doing it as far as also having the uh, counseling piece there. Uh, I would assume they're not having groups. No. Um, but the individual piece. But I I know that in the mental health area they're seeing people sometimes, like I said, on the phone, online, yeah, over Zoom. and some it's in person. Be like Zoom Zoom meetings. There's Zoom AA meetings. Uh, I assume oh. there's Zoom one-on-one counseling, right, as well? Yeah. Well, just, that's yeah. if you're savvy enough. I'm not savvy enough. You're teaching me that for Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, we're going to have to work <laughs> yeah. on getting Zoom set up for Thanksgiving. Uh, going to bring me a laptop computer. And <laughs> there's a whole plan. <laughs> there's a big plan, yeah, so that I can Zoom in on Thanksgiving <laughs> yesterday. Uh, Unfortunately. So, so you mentioned yesterday a term that I had never heard with, with respect to you know, a bit of this medical piece. It was certain doctors that you guys called croakers. Could oh, you, could yeah, you that was explain what that is? Well, in, in the methadone, when I was working over in methadone, there were many times we would hear of clients relapsing, and, um, and it was because a doctor has given them a prescription for something, particularly benzodiazepine oh. of some form that, for Valley, usually it was Xanax, and uh, and we knew that when this doctor was being spoken of as their primary care, um, and it's a doctor that was actually recommended by their friend, with mm. quotes, quote unquote, uh, you know, we knew the the underlying reason why this doctor was becoming very attractive to <laughs> yeah. certain clients. He's driving a Porsche right? all of a sudden, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, and we would just, you know, we just call them croakers because these are doctors that are feeding the addiction of clients, even though they know that they're on methadone, they know that there's a struggle. And we would hear about lines being made down the road waiting because they would see patients after their regular patients came. Yeah, this and is they just had a, a whole other business. A little- it was really a disgrace. It's just a little extra income for them, I guess. Yeah. You know, it was tough, but you know, it's lives. It's people's lives. It's uh, it's a disgrace with the education and experience that they have. Mm. Yeah, you but hear we just stories. Found it mm-hmm. Such a disgrace. Yeah, you hear stories all the time about these doctors getting. Well, it was I forget what year it was when it really like bubbled over and everybody was getting arrested. Like you see stories about doctors, you know, basically selling prescriptions out of a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot um, and things like that. Well, this was well before. This was well. This was in the nineties. Even this was. It was. It's always. It has always been something going on, and even if. I was very proactive in that area. I would call the doctor's office. 
<laughs> like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> did you um did you notice like because you retired about five years ago, so that was still sort of in the middle of of the the opiate. Epidemic, I think that's right? just when that's when fentanyl's just started, yeah, right, maybe killing right. people like every day, or had it already started the fentanyl outbreak? Oh, did we lose her? We lost her. And Let me try that again. This commercial break is brought to you by Recovery in the Middle Ages website, middleagesrecovery.com. And. What happened there? I lost you. I don't know. Just... The call dropped. I have the service back here in our studio, yes, which, such is, as which is the storeroom in the back of Nat's store, is uh, a little dicey. Yes. Um, okay, so, so yeah, so I started during the HIV the explosion when they started to identify um, HIV. Okay. And um, so I did a lot of that work also, working with clients with HIV. Wow. In my previous life, before I was a social worker, I used to work in hematology, and um, uh, and I went back to school to get my uh, bachelor's in psychology, my master's in social work, and uh, so it was really a good background during that time, and really with all of the substance abuse uh, um, field that I had this awareness about I was able to understand the lab work that was going on and things like that. So, um, but yes, we social workers were brought into the picture in Suffolk County uh, into the methadone programs during that time with the um, with the surge and identification of HIV cases. Right. So we did education, ran groups, talked of you know precautions and safety measures and things like that. So going towards the end of, of right around when you retired, um, I guess before we got cut off, did you, um, did you see any like increase in fentanyl use? And did you notice any of the doctors who were previously prescribing these benzos had switched to writing a lot of prescriptions for, you know, um, fentanyl patches, yeah, fentanyl patches op- or any opiates really? Well, actually I never personally ran into doctors writing prescriptions. It was always, clients were getting them on the street. They were not getting it from doctors. It was being passed along or it was not, they didn't know that there was fentanyl in it until they used it. Yeah, that's the problem. It's a very unfortunate, a very unfortunate, there was a young gentleman who I didn't feel was really ready to graduate from the program and uh, he was my client and um, he, he, but the courts ultimately discharged him because on paper he looked okay. Right. And uh, he did end up overdosing within two weeks. And, uh, I mean, it was just very upsetting. Yeah. You know, he sure. passed away. Yeah. Young guy, 20s. Mm. Um, it's always so hard to, you know, to have that happen. Sure. Yeah, especially if you're working in the industry. I mean, I know how many people I know just from being uh, in recovery who have passed away, but I can imagine if professionally um, yeah. it must take a real toll and you're doing God, you were doing God's work over there. I mean, that well, is Well, it was also thing. so specific to, because I, I said I was arguing with them. I contacted the courts. I 
spoke with, you know, probation. And I just said, he's not ready. But, you know, yeah. his parents were calling me. Don't let him graduate. Because there's certain things that were going on. There were certain patterns in his life that said he's not in a good space. Yeah, so, um, it's un- unfortunate that it, and then it was just, oh, through my, you know, through the years, of course, but certain people are more memorable. Sure. You know? Speak, speaking of more memorable clients, uh, Aaron, I guess, was talking to you on the phone last night and uh, she was hanging up. You said something about to ask her about the, the urine test story. <laughs> Oh yes, we've had many experiences. With yeah, we've talked about this, this uh, was specifically yeah, one about a guy who who you maybe caught because his um, I don't know his equipment yeah. didn't, didn't match the or the. <laughs> he was not. He got the equipment of the wrong race, <laughs> and uh, you know he's an Irish white guy, and, and here he is with a wizenator. with a pretty dark brown penis. What's going on with that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and um, I mean, of course, I didn't do that supervised When I worked in methadone, I also did supervised urines. Even though I was a social worker and there were drug counselors, if, you know, if somebody was busy, I always stepped in. It didn't matter to me. I, you know, I was right there, you know, always ready to roll up my sleeves and get involved. <laughs> did you, so. did you catch, did you catch people uh, trying to, to... Okay. Oh, I could. Well, it would be women. You know, I only went in with the women. Right. I didn't go over with the guys, you know. And uh, um, with the guy with the um, mismatched penis, <laughs> uh, they have them stand, um, a counselor will stand behind them. So there's a mirror mm. on the wall. Yeah, the two mirrors. A small mirror. Right. On the wall. Right. And um, so. And it has urine in it. And, um, you know, he really thought he was being very suave. Again, this gentleman in his, I would say he was early 30s. Um, I also worked with his father. His father was my client. And his father did very well. Unfortunately, his son did not. Um, and his son passed away oh, also oh, in, in his early 30s. He had a little boy and uh, oh, a young wife. Uh, and it was with benzos overdosing with oh. a combination with benzos and um, but um, yeah it's very creative and that's really I mean I don't look at all the shenanigans as necessarily bad if you can turn it around to recognize how freaking creative is that <laughs> the, the, the well, lengths that we would go that I used to go to to try yeah. and pass urine tests. I mean, I could write a book, you know, on how. I, I, yeah, I found out through that I mean, recently worked. that you could buy you can buy clean urine at uh, like Utopia. Oh yeah, yes, <laughs> you can totally get urine that'll pass as long as it's warm enough and. Uh, That's right. Well, and there's various ways, like having that penis keeps it warm enough. The woman would have vials up inside their vagina. And uh, try to put their hand, as you're asking for a supervised urine, I had this a number of times, um, and they, for some reason it all of a sudden became a two-handed uh, ordeal. <laughs> and I was like, what the heck is going on down there? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. And, and bending over. So I was like, excuse me, sit up straight. 
We're talking about giving a urine. Put your other hand on. Oh, no, I can't put my hands on my thigh. I'm trying to hold it. I said, tell me you can't hold that cup with one hand. Yes. I said, don't think. I don't know what's go- what exactly is going on. And then poop came the vial out uh, with the, uh, with the no. uh, urine in it because they had to use the fingernail to pop the... Uh, the seal that they put on it so that the urine could come out in the cup. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Very, and it's nice and warm, right? It's body temperature now. Yeah. That's... But that kind of creativity, you know, and one thing I said, I remember a number of times saying, you know, you have, you're going to get a, you know, a, an infection, an vaginal infection. You're not supposed to be putting objects up in, I mean, it's just crazy. So um, I don't know. People who are sm- smoking and shooting drugs that they buy off the street are probably not as worried about vaginal infections. Yeah, probably not. People. You know what? That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right, but it's. Um, but I always do try to, and I do. I actually do see it as there's certain positive things about these crazy things that. Um, it's a, it's a certainly a creativity that could be worked on if willing. Channel it in the right direction, able, you know. Right. You could have the next yes, Elon you could be Musk president in of the United States. Right. I mean, look at that. Oh my god. It's gosh. incredible. I mean, a junkie could yeah. start the day with no money, no prospects, no credit, no house uh-huh. and figure out how to get, you know, $160 worth of, of heroin and, you know, and something mm-hmm. to eat, you know. Like every and a single place day, to lay the head. Right, yep. you know. I imagine the junk, it, junkies do very well in sales. Yes, you know? right. I met a lot of junkies in sales. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> well, lawyers especially the car sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, things that require a bit of moral compromise. Um, oh, well, boy. We, we could definitely talk to you all day, but we're we're running up against our uh, deadline here. Yeah, so okay. We should have there's you back. Some, there though. is some stuff that we didn't get to that I wanted to get to, so I think. I think we should. Well, would, would maybe you be, another time. Would you be willing to come back and talk to us? Will again? you come back and humiliate yourself on the air with us? <laughs> <laughs> I certainly will. I'll all stand right. right by your side in all the humiliation. All right. Yeah, we're Excellent. all getting. It's okay. all doing it together. So thank you so much. Okay. For on. All right. Great to so, speak yeah, with that's you. A, okay. It was very nice meeting you, Nate, Matt, and uh, and I'll talk to you. Okay. You, you bet. We'll we'll get that Thanksgiving. Okay stuff sorted out soon in the next couple days. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Ta-da. That was awesome. Yeah. She's great. I just had flashbacks of all of the, um, uh, different people that I've met like her, uh, in recovery, the professionals, the clinicians. She reminds me of so many different, um, people in, in recovery uh, in that I met. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, the older responsible, you know, uh, someone who's not an addict. I don't think she's an addict. She's not. No. Um, and you can kind of tell, I can always sort of tell the difference. Um, but definitely very strong sense of compassion and you know really love for the work came through you know and that's that's really that's really nice to see that you know even after 30 years in the business not 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 jaded you know no and there was there's people like that you know um and they're rare but you you can see it in their eyes i mean from my end when i was going through all these places meeting people like her because the people coming through those facilities um uh, at least i'll speak for myself when i was going through those facilities i was completely helpless mm-hmm. if i wasn't there against my will um i was you know reluctantly put into these p- positions i had a lot hanging over my head 
and um, and people like that made me feel like okay, somebody has has got this right. because I don't. Yeah, and you're in their hands, especially with the legal stuff. I didn't get an, uh, a chance to talk a little bit about how important that job is you know the fact that um uh, people who are in those situations between court um being diagnosed as bipolar and also suffering from addiction and the legal system that's a very unique set of problems and there has to be people like kathy uh who give a crap who know what they're doing to kind of guide those people so they're just not in jail forever or dead right Um, right it's an incredible role, you know, the fact that there's somebody willing to do that, that work, which I'm sure is difficult, you know, at yeah. times, uh, it's, it's a, it's a credit to people like her. Yeah. And, um, and I think she probably shares the same kind of opinion about 12 step where what it sounded like is, yeah, it's great, you know, as, as a tool along with, you know, let's be open-minded. Let's, let's not be judgy. Let's keep people alive. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you know, uh, if it's a medicine that you can take and taper off of and like, look at some point, uh, you're going to be uncomfortable because the reason uh, you continue to do drugs and drink is because it gives you this sort of comfort that you think you're getting. That's very transient and goes away and makes your life horrible. But, uh, but you you're know, not necessarily aware of that while you're doing it. it, it right. <laughs> right. Somebody needs to focus your consciousness on the, the fact that, you know, maybe this isn't uh, working out for you. Yeah. How's that, that working you expected, for you? you know? How's that working for you? Right. Um, and that sort of thing. Right. And I didn't get to, to talk about too much because I've been on Vivitrol and my experience with Camperol and stuff like that. So I think definitely we ought yeah, to get we'll, her we'll back. And, her back. Sure and she seems to do great. She, you guys seem comfortable. There wasn't any weird family <laughs> like weirdness. No, no. We, we get along fine. We always have. She's a lovely, lovely woman. Um, so that was really, really cool. Um, but we are doing great here. We're running long, and I think we've got a news story that we want to do for Recovery oh. in the News. Yeah! All right. Recovery in the News this week. We go back to uh, celebrities. Uh, in this case, a blast from the past. Uh if you folks know Sinead O'Connor or recall her, um, for I can't name a song, but I do remember her being nothing in the news. compares to you. It was I, an '80s song. I thought that was Prince. Uh, I think did it Prince was, was it her, her song or his song? I thought Prince did "Nothing Compares to You." I was a fan of neither. Hmm. Okay, it was well, definitely she definitely that was definitely her big song, and then right. she also ripped up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and that was, was ostracized the one I knew. from the yes. music industry for years. How dare you? The Pope has control over the music industry. For <laughs> you know, like the Dixie Chicks, you know, you don't mess with sacred cows, right? Yeah, I heard the the, the new Pope is way into guar. What's guar? That? G W A R. You don't no. know guar? What's guar? <sighs> They, there was this awful band from like the 80s that would dress up in crazy costumes and people would like go on stage and this giant weird monster would eat one of the fans. Oh. You don't know Guar? Sounds like The Residents or something. Okay. Guar is, you've got homework. Not that it's a great band. It's just, it was. Link in the show notes. Yeah. God. All right. What's so, the opposite of <laughs> a gong? I got to get a gun. You got to get a gun because if you tell a bad joke, if nobody laughs, I know. Gun. Well, that was the sad trombone, but that's, that's wah, now, wah, that's now animals? torturing small animals. So <laughs> Just, we got to anyway, work. <laughs> so, Sinead O'Connor, who is now 53, she was, she's a year older than me, um, 
She revealed that in order to work on her mental and physical health, she has to delay her tour for another year because um, she has chosen to enter rehab. Uh, and the reason she gave was, uh, this year I lost someone beloved and it has affected me so badly that I briefly became addicted to a drug other than weed. What? <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound like some circuitous, circuitous addiction thinking. So, <laughs> right. Uh, like, I've been addicted to weed for, for decades, but I, I, things got away from me, so I got addicted to something else. Anyway, uh, the singer, well, here you go. She admitted that she smoked marijuana for 34 years before opening about her tumultuous childhood, revealing she grew up with trauma and abuse. I then went straight into the music business. Of course. And I, right. And never really learned how to make a normal life, which is... It's kind of sad when you think about it, you know? I yeah, mean, I don't know. But what's so great about a normal life? Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, if you look <laughs> at the picture of how she dresses now, she's sort of got this um, burka thing going on. Oh, is she on? wearing like, a burka? Yeah, it's not a burka. I mean, that it's is the old... full burka. That's weird. And I, I mean, it's not weird if you're a Muslim. Well, I, mean, I don't think normal. she is, though. That's the thing. I, <laughs> Who knows, man? I, in any event. Burkas are sexy. She So... She um, <laughs> she promised that she will explain very clearly in 2022 about what inspired her to seek help. And the Grammy award-winning seeker confirmed that she'll be entering rehab next week. <laughs> <laughs> so she's got to get a few uh, few more, I don't know, whatever she's addicted to under her belt before she heads to rehab. It's great. It's like so. uh, I was joking about the... Uh, the just you know the just for today book uh in na it's like a, a daily book of affirmations oh, yeah, and things yeah. just for today just for today i said like the procrastinating addict should they should have a book that says it's called <laughs> just for tomorrow you know didn't <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh. oh, yeah sound I'm not, this week I'm sorry is, i apologize yes. the board is off. mike is off uh on the board today but we we're gonna revamp we it can, put some new sounds in yeah. and figure out what we right you know um so that was recovery in the news try this one yeah hit the cue okay here we go. okay <laughs> now wow. where are we all right we are up to uh this week in weird Whoa, worlds oh, collide. Shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry, folks. Right. I'm sorry. This week in Weird, security cameras films odd entity. A curious piece of security camera footage from a home in Wisconsin appears to show some kind of entity with strange hands briefly <laughs> peering out from behind a door before disappearing. The video, which was reportedly recorded earlier this month in a Milwaukee residence, was posted to Reddit this past weekend by, reliable the, source. Right, by the petrified homeowner who explained that only she and her baby, and the baby especially, were in the house at the time of the incident. And as such, she can cannot account for the mysterious quote visitor check out the puzzling footage and find out more on this story wow. coast to coast am this week in weird um yeah maybe it was just some uh you know p political campaign person knocking on doors looking to get out the vote just I, had weird I think, hands. Yeah, I mean, the weird hands kind of says I mean, it, it all. It was Wisconsin, after all. Right? It, it was. So. Let's see. The baby was there, and the weird hands. Yeah. The entity with strange hands. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> Briefly peering out. Scissor hands? Uh, <laughs> gloves? Uh, yeah, I don't know. So there you go. That's This Week in Weird. Yeah. Just gets better every week. Um, I think we had a great show today. How about uh, when this is over, we go do a little coke? That's it. <laughs> Booyah. 
Um, follow us on um, on Twitter, Facebook, oh, all those places. Yes, um, MiddleAgesRecovery.com. Please fill us. Is fill- anything happening on our Twitter account? By the way, I, I've, I'm, uh, I don't think I've logged on there yet. Yeah, it's it sort of does like a clone post when I post oh, someone to okay. post on all of them. Oh, Plus, that's good. Um, the lovely and talented Aaron Coffin Moore right. is also on top of that. Um, and I'm glad somebody is because um, listen nuts. for us on the Dopey Podcast ads. Um, join our private discussion group so we can talk about stuff that doesn't get uh, doesn't get searched online. It'll be really cool just to chat with the fans and um, and friends on there. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progress, not perfection. Have a great week. See you next time. Be good. Bye. Yeah, no.